welcome back to another curbside consult from NEJM Resident 360. I'm Mike Mee, a hospitalist and editorial fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. In this episode, we are going to be tackling the topic of GI bleed with our guest, Dr. Naveen Kumar. He's a newly minted attending at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, where he completed his internal medicine training and his gastroenterology fellowship. He's a fantastic teacher, and somehow during training, he found the time to write a textbook on internal medicine clinical pearls. We're also trying out a new format today, and joining us in the already cramped NEJM recording studio is Blim Simmon, who is currently a fourth-year medical student at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Because GI bleed is a broad topic that can be caused by many different etiologies, we're going to be splitting the topic into two parts. Today, we'll be covering part one on non-variceal upper GI bleeding, the general approach to the patient, and some key management considerations. Have you ever wondered just why we transfuse blood for hemoglobin less than 7 grams per deciliter? Or just what is the benefit of giving high-dose proton pump inhibitors? And what should we be doing about all those risk scores? Well, just keep on listening. Welcome, Dr. Kumar. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Balim. Really happy to be here and excited to talk about some GI bleeding. All right. So, Balim, I'll describe a case to you, and why don't you show off to everyone your excellent knowledge about the management of GI bleed. How does that sound? Awesome. Sounds good. All right. So, we have a patient who comes into the ED. He's 68 years old, who has a past medical history of hypertension. He recently had a STEMI, for which he got a PCI five months ago. And he's now coming in with two days of melana. His initial vitals in the ED are blood pressure 100 over 70, heart rate 85, respiratory rate 20. And he has an O2 saturation of 98%. So you quickly look through his records and you find that he's supposed to be on aspirin, Plavix, or clopidogrel, metoprolol, lisinopril, and atorvastatin. How do you initially think about this patient? And tell us a little bit about your workup. All right. So... One of the first things that I would do would make sure kind of to go through my ABCs and make sure that this patient is initially stable. His vitals will be important in terms of evaluating that. His blood pressure is a little bit soft, and I presume this is the lying blood pressure of 100 over 70. And his heart rate right now is not very elevated, although I believe we said he's on a beta blocker, so that might be camouflaging a tachycardia. It seems like he's able to maintain his airway. He's satting at 98% in uh, room air. He's been having this melana for two days. I probably would want to get orthostatic blood pressure on him to see how much of a blood volume loss he has. And then I'd go through the initial management of the patient in terms of you know getting two large-bore peripheral IV, IVs, preferably a 16-gauge, place the patient on the monitor, alert the ICU that this might be a transfer depending on how he's doing, and then I'm ordering my initial labs of a type and screen, CBC, BMP, coags, and liver labs. Awesome. Yeah, so I think you hit a really important point, which is when a patient comes in with a potential GI bleed, they can present in a full spectrum of how ill they can be. Their volume status can be a little bit hard to determine right up front, and so you'll need to do everything you can to make sure that the patient is stable first. So just picking apart some of the points that you mentioned there, Naveen, uh, with regards to things like an orthostatic vital sign or some of these other things that Bulan mentioned, how do you go about thinking about whether or not a patient is stable when they come in with a GI bleed, and what are some historical elements you might be looking for uh, when you know, the ED calls you on the phone for a consultation? Yeah, Mike, that's a great question. So I think, like Balim acutely noted, the vital signs are critical. And so when you look at the vital signs, you really can get a sense of how much of blood volume has been lost since their presentation with initial bleed. So when a patient has resting tachycardia, I generally think that they have mild to moderate hypovolemia. It's been shown that that's about less than 15% of their blood volume lost. 
However, when you start having signs of orthostatic hypotension, hypotension, the hypovolemia is actually more of a significant variety, often over 15% of blood volume lost. And then when you start seeing resting hypotension, that's severe. That's when these patients have actually lost greater than or equal to 40% of their blood volume. So right off the bat, I'm looking critically at these vital signs to get a sense of how much blood volume has been lost. When we start thinking about what questions I'm going to be asking on the phone, in addition to vital signs, I'm thinking about risk factors for upper GI bleeding. What medications are they on? So you mentioned that this patient's on aspirin as well as clopidogrel, so dual antiplatelet therapy certainly increases the risk of GI bleeding. And I'm also, just like Bulim noted, looking at some particular lab values, particularly the BUN to creatinine ratio, that can be extremely helpful in terms of localizing where the GI bleed is coming from. It's actually been shown that if the BUN to creatinine ratio is greater than 30 to 1, there's a greater than 7 uh, seven point likelihood ratio that that bleed is coming from the upper GI source. So that's a very helpful number to look at as well as the hemoglobin, hematocrit, getting a sense of how much blood loss has occurred. Particularly, it's helpful to know what their baseline blood concentrations have been in the past to see what that change from baseline is, and as well as the coagulopathy, as well as thrombocytopenia, looking for any other reasons why this patient may be bleeding and what I need to correct before I start thinking about doing an endoscopy. Excellent, excellent. So, Balem, Bouncing off of what Naveen gave us in terms of uh, some of the, the key points, he hinted at one potential reason for an upper GI bleed, but perhaps maybe you can go through your differential diagnosis for what could be causing this patient's presentation of melana and what's going through your head as far as how you may manage those uh, conditions. Sure. I try to split in, my, in terms of my differential if I'm thinking of a upper GI bleed by location. So I think about either esophageal causes, most common gastric causes, or um, most common duodenal causes. So in terms of esophageal causes, I mean, variceal bleeds are really first thing that comes to my mind. It doesn't sound from his presentation that this might be a risk factor for him. I usually expect it in someone that has a history of alcohol abuse or cirrhosis. That doesn't seem to be his case. If he had been complaining of retching or vomiting for the past couple of days, I'd also think about a tear in the, um, in the esophagus, like a Mallory Weiss tear. Otherwise, kind of moving down towards gastric causes, peptic ulcer disease and NSAID uses are things that come to my mind. And then AV malformations throughout the GI tract is also something that's kind of high up in my list in terms of a differential. Excellent. So, um, Naveen, of those differential diagnoses, what are the ones that you be most concerned about because the patient can really lose a lot of blood because of that? Yeah, it's a great question. So certainly the variceal bleeds always uh, pick up the hairs on the back of my back. I'm, I'm always a little nervous when I hear about a patient who has portal hypertension coming with an upper GI bleed. Definitely the concern there is that they have a variceal bleed. And the reason it's concerning is exactly like you said, the pressures of these bleeds are very profound and they can exsanguinate quite quickly in certain circumstances. This is why and we're going to talk about timing of endoscopy later in this talk, but for variceal bleeds, because of the potential for severity of bleeding, guidelines actually recommend that we do an endoscopy within 12 hours. That's different for non-variceal bleed, which we're going to spend the majority of time talking today. So that's one thing. So I'm looking out for features of chronic liver disease that may increase the risk for a variceal bleed because actually with each variceal bleed there is a mortality rate of 15 to 20 percent so it's quite high and much higher than non-variceal bleeding which actually nowadays is around two percent for mortality so much higher mortality rate with that the other one that i'm looking out for is a patient who's had a prior aortic intervention because that would raise my suspicion for potentially an aortoenteric fistula and that is a very grave diagnosis with an extremely high mortality rate which often even with surgery can approach 50 percent so those are the two diagnoses i'm most concerned about but of course i'm also just thinking about the clinical presentation the vital signs and also we'll talk about other scoring systems that can help us triage and prognosticate uh, these patients presenting with upper gi bleeds um, that's a really interesting point that you mentioned about the guidelines regarding management of variceal bleed. I didn't, uh, that's actually something new. I'm just learning right now. But in my limited experience seeing these patients during residency, some of the sickest patients I've had with GI bleeds were the patients with bad cirrhosis coming in with hematemesis, melana, everything, and were just pouring the blood in, trying to 
stabilize them in the ICU. Absolutely. So fortunately, this is not our patient. Um, seems like he's been losing blood gradually over the course of a couple of days. His symptoms uh, may have been even a little bit longer. So while we've been talking, his labs come back, and we note a few important ones. So the BUN over creatinine for him is 30 over 0.9. So the BUN is 30 and the creatinine of 0.9. It did indeed exceed that threshold, that ratio that Naveen was mentioning earlier. And then his hemoglobin comes back at 7.2. The last one we have from him was back when he, he was in the hospital for his PCI, and it was normal at the time, about 12.6. There was no reading in between, so we're not really sure how acute this drop was. His INR is 1.0, and his platelet count is normal, 195. What are some other diagnostics we would do. The one in particular that comes to my mind is the nasal gastric lavage. Do we do it? Do we not do it? I've seen some GI doctors swear by it when they give talks. Others rarely mention it on the phone when you're talking to them. Yeah, it's a great question. So nasal gastric lavage was definitely part of the traditional management of upper GI bleeding for many, many years. But it's kind of fallen by the wayside more recently because there's some good evidence that kind of guides the use of nasal gastric lavage, or I should actually say the not use. So first of all, it's been shown that nasal gastric placement is actually the most painful procedure that a patient receives in the emergency department. This is patient-reported outcomes. So right off the bat, we know patients don't like it. And then two, we have, to, uh, we have to look into seeing, does this actually help outcomes? So there's been studies in this area. There was a large retrospective study of over 600 patients who presented with upper GI bleeding, and they looked at the patients who got nasogastric lavage versus those who did not. And it turns out that having received nasogastric lavage did not change clinical outcomes whatsoever. So there was no improvement with 30-day mortality, length of stay, or need for surgery or transfusion with nasogastric lavage. So if it doesn't improve clinical outcomes, does it at least make it easier on us gastroenterologists when we go and do an endoscopy to see the entire stomach? So then th- there's a no- another study that actually looked at comparing nasogastric lavage with IV erythromycin. And it turns out that IV erythromycin is just as good at improving gastric visualization than nasogastric lavage. So if it's extremely painful for patients, if it doesn't improve clinical outcomes, and if it doesn't make the job easier for the gastroenterologist, generally, and this is why most guidelines do no longer recommend using nasogastric lavage. Mm-hmm. I've also heard during my training that sometimes nasogastric lavage can help with making the diagnosis of either upper versus lower GI bleed. Does the literature support that? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think there there are some caveats to it, but there we just need to look at what are the potential outcomes. So if you do a nasogastric lavage and it comes back positive with blood, you do know that that blood is coming from an upper GI source. That's the only way that you're actually lavaging out uh, blood from the stomach is if you're actually bleeding in that vicinity. But if it's negative, it's not that helpful for ruling out an upper GI bleed because it could be just beyond the pylorus. The pylorus may be closed all the blood is distal to the pylorus, or at that point it is, and then you're lavaging and you're just getting gastric contents back. So you have to interpret it, those caveats in mind. If it's positive, it's helpful, but I would argue there's other evidence, just as we mentioned, the BUN to creatinine ratio that we can use, the other risk factors for upper GI bleeding that we can utilize to really determine if an upper GI bleed is occurring. Okay, great. Just touching back upon that point of the BUN to creatinine ratio, What's the mechanism that we think causes the BUN to be high out of proportion to creatinine in an upper GI bleed versus, say, a lower? Yeah, it's a good, good, good question here. So what happens is when blood is actually in the upper GI tract, it gets metabolized and broken down by proteases and down into protein products, which are then transferred over to the liver. The liver then metabolizes those further to the end product, which is which is urea or blood urea nitrogen. So when the bleeding is coming from an upper source, you actually get an elevation in the blood urea nitrogen because of that metabolism, which doesn't occur in a lower GI bleed. Mm-hmm. That's quite fascinating. Uh, And I think it's very helpful to have that mechanism in mind to remember that association, which, as you mentioned, has a six to seven odds ratio associated with an upper GI bleed. So pretty useful test, actually. Yeah, exactly. And you also have to consider that, of course, there's also this issue of prerenal azotemia. So in significant GI bleeds, you can see a BUN elevation regardless of that metabolic effect. So it's also helpful to pay attention to the BUN in terms of that uh, degree of elevation. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. 
Okay, Bulim, so you heard the lab tests. Okay. Are there anything else you might be considering for this patient as your next step? And also, why don't you walk us through a little bit any additional therapies you might be thinking about ordering for this patient up front while you're, while you're planning your call to the endoscopist? All right. So in terms of his labs, like we spoke, the BUN to creatinine ratio is over one, so that makes me more suspicious of a upper GI bleed. The one thing that kind of leaves me at a dilemma is his hemoglobin is uh, 7.2. And I know that now the, the guidelines suggest transfusing a patient in a restrictive manner, so when hemoglobin is less than 7. So he's just at that cusp, and I don't know how well an HNH responds during an acute bleed. Presumably, we ordered these labs about an hour ago, so I would assume them to be coming down a little bit. So my dilemma is should I, is whether to start transfusing right now, but he's about to meet essentially criteria for transfusion. And then in terms of his platelets, I believe the guidelines currently say that above 50, there's no need for a platelet transfusion, so I'd hold off on that for now and then kind of keep an eye on it as we continue to transfuse the patient. All right, we're gonna st- I'm going to stop you right there because, well, we're getting to a topic that attendings love to pin medical students <laughs> on and residents on the wards, which is when do you give blood for a GI bleed? So, Naveen, when do you give blood? So I follow, in general, the findings of the Villanueva study that was published by the New England Journal in 2013, which is really a landmark trial and I think profoundly changed the way we approach GI bleeding, upper GI bleeding in particular. So I do follow the restrictive transfusion strategy for most patients. And so let's talk a little bit more about that study so we can figure out who does this this actually apply to. So the study was a large randomized controlled trial of over 900 patients who presented with upper GI bleeding and importantly included patients with portal hypertension. So this is not just non-variceal bleeding, this is including variceal bleeding. And they randomized half the patients to receive uh, the restrictive transfusion strategy. So they're only transfused if their hemoglobin fell less than 7.0 versus a liberal transfusion strategy where the patients were transfused for hemoglobin levels less than 9. So the liberal transfusion patients absolutely got more blood than the restrictive transfusion patients. But interestingly enough, the outcomes, as Balim was referring to, were better for the patients who got less blood. So the restrictive transfusion strategy, the, those patients had better mortality, less rebleeding, and less complications. Now, there's multiple reasons why this may have occurred. So let's think about what happens when you start having a GI bleed. So the body is an amazing machine. And so when there's volume loss, what the body does as a compensatory mechanism is that it vasoconstricts the splanchnic bed. So if you are GI bleeding and your splanchnic bed is vasoconstricted, that means less blood is getting to those areas that are actually the source of bleeding. When you give blood to a patient who is bleeding, the splanchnic vasoconstriction is reversed, and now there's more flow of blood to the area that is actually bleeding. So that's one reason why we may have found these results with the Villanueva study. Number two is that when we transfuse blood, we generally just transfuse packed red blood cells. We don't also give platelets. We don't also give clotting factors unless we're in a massive transfusion protocol. So there's also this theoretical downside of giving blood that we're diluting the body's ability to clot at sources of GI bleeding. The third issue is that when we give blood, we are adding more pressure into the vascular system and potentially worsening portal hypertension. So we are adding more pressure to bleeds that are potentially arising due to portal hypertension. And this actually makes sense in the context of the study because it was actually the patients with liver disease who had child's A or B cirrhosis who actually had the most benefit from the restrictive transfusion strategy because their portal hypertension was not worsened by the bleeding. So three good reasons why this may be true. But then we have to ask ourselves, who does this apply to? Does it apply to our patient in this podcast? So whenever I look at a study that is about to change my clinical management, I think about who was included in the study and more importantly, who was not included. So the exclusion criteria are interesting to note for this study. So if the patient had massive exsanguinating bleeding, they were not included. If they had cardiovascular disease that manifested within the past 90 days, they were not included. So those were patients who had an acute coronary syndrome, symptomatic peripheral vascular disease, or recent TIA or stroke. Those patients weren't in the study. 
two more main indications I want to tell you about that were not included in the study. One was if they had a transfusion within the past 90 days. And the fourth is if they had recent trauma or surgery. So all those groups of patients, there's actually a lot of patients that we may be seeing in the hospital GI bleeding. They were not in this study. So the question is, what do we do with our cardiac patients? And I'd say we don't have great evidence for this, but most guidelines are recommending a higher threshold um, for transfusion. Balim, you're right. You, you hit it right on the nail that the hemoglobin of 7.2 is above that transfusion threshold from the study, but this patient has coronary artery disease with a recent PCI. Mike, you said that was just five months ago. Yeah, five months ago. So, it, you know, the study was 90 days for ACS. Uh, in terms of excluding patients, but this patient is five months, but may have ongoing ischemic heart disease. We didn't, we don't have information yet in terms of if he's experiencing any demand ischemia. So in general, we the guidelines do recommend a higher threshold, typically hemoglobin of eight for patients with cardiac disease, which I think is very reasonable. Um, but I think it's again always important to go back to the study and think about who was in it and who can we generalize the findings to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just another example of a point that I don't think can be emphasized enough is that oftentimes when we're on the wars, we hear these sound bites, the, the headline news, which is restrictive or conservative blood transfusion thresholds are better than liberal. And people remember seven is better than nine. But then you really have to think a little bit about who were included in the study and who were excluded from the study and really figure out whether my patient fits this mold perfectly or they're in this gray area where a little bit of clinical judgment is required. Exactly. So I'm going to leave this one up to you, Balim, but <laughs> let's say he's not doing too poorly. He doesn't have chest pain at the moment, but he has been having melanin. And what do you think? So with all that fascinating logic behind the the why seven acts the way it does versus nine, I think, I mean, 7.2 is right at the cusp. I think he's probably dropping his HIH as we go, and by the time this this comes around. So I I would probably err on the side of transfusing him. I know. What do you guys think? I, I support your decision. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a patient with cardiovascular disease, maybe need a little bit more oxygen-carrying capacity in his blood. And yeah. after the liter of fluid we gave him, he's probably going to have a hemoglobin that's below our threshold. Yeah. Now, is, is this is this just because you both are aspiring cardiologists? Um, we want to protect the heart. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Every, everybody, That's fair. everybody knows that the GI tract is just to nourish the heart. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Good point. All right. So we decided to give him some blood. We got it out of the blood bank and it's hanging. Anything else, Balim, you want to do for this patient? Sure. So I would also start him on PPIs. From what I understand, the mechanism of action is that in terms of the GI tract, it's a little bit of an acidic environment for clot formation and stabilization. So PPIs allow for a friendlier environment for stabilization of the clot. I know that there's no difference between drip versus intermittent, although this may just be my exposure, but I can't ever say that I've seen patients be placed on a drip. I don't know if this is because of cost effectiveness, but I would start the patient on a, on a PPI at this point. What do you think? Naveen? Yeah, that's great. It's, it's funny because I think um, it's, 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 I, there's no way that I'm old yet, right? Like I'm, I'm a first-year <laughs> GI attending, but it's funny to hear how practice has already changed because when I was a resident, absolutely, we were using continuous infusions of PPI. I don't know for for Mike, how about you? Were you were, what were you seeing as a I resident? think, uh, you know, true to being just a few years behind you in training, uh, at the beginning of my training, I saw a lot of people get put on a drip coming up from the ED to the floor. But now more recently, I, I see the 80 milligram bolus high dose up front, and then they wait to get more once they get to the floor. Yeah. So I see the shift too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, and Bolim, you, you, you also were, were totally right about the pH being important for clot formation. So it's been shown that a pH over six is when uh, is the best environment for a clot to form. So exactly. So in the stomach where the pH is generally four, giving it a proton pump inhibitor to raise that pH above six is theoretically helpful to form a clot. So where uh, so then let's talk a little bit about the evidence of PPI use in upper GI bleeding. So it's interesting. The first big randomized control trial came from 2000. Uh, it was done in Hong Kong. And it looked at patients who had bleeding peptic ulcers. So they, they did an endoscopy. They found an ulcer that was either bleeding or had a visible vessel, which has a high risk for re-bleeding. 
and then they randomize the patients to be put on IV PPI continuous infusion. So that's why we've been using continuous infusion for a long time. This, this is what the studies used. So bolus plus continuous infusion for 72 hours. And what they found was that the patients who got IV PPI versus placebo had lower risks of rebleeding. But there was no mortality benefit. It's just rebleeding. For a long time, we had been using IV PPI in a continuous infusion, but other studies had actually looked at the role of IV PPI as bolus dosing, and were finding results that were seemed equivalent to the IV continuous infusion. So the question was, do we need to continue doing the IV PPI continuous infusion, which is more expensive, or can we just do the bolus uh, IV PPI dosing? So to answer this question, a meta-analysis was done, brought together 13 different randomized controlled trials of patients who had high-risk peptic ulcer bleeding, who were treated endoscopically, and then they were randomized to either get continuous IV PPI or bolus PPI. It was a non-inferior study and turns out that the bolus PPI was non-inferior to the IV continuous PPI. For us as medicine doctors and you're and you're seeing the patient in the emergency room or when, once they get to the floor the question is what do you do with IV PPI before endoscopy? So that study took a few more years to be done. It happened in 2007, same group from Hong Kong, large randomized controlled trial and this time they gave the IV PPI up front before endoscopy. And what they found was that the patients who were randomized to get the IV PPI before endoscopy had lower rates of high-risk ulcers on endoscopy. So it essentially downgraded the severity of the ulcer. And because these ulcers were now less severe, they required less endoscopic therapy. And since they required less endoscopic therapy, the patients did not need to stay in the hospital as long. But again, there was no improvement in mortality or even rebleeding or need for other interventions. So, the most guidelines do say that we should consider giving an IV PPI upfront for any patient with upper GI bleeding. But there's also um, one guideline, the NICE guideline, that actually mentions to not give an IV PPI because the evidence is not strong enough to support the costs of that uh, therapy. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Do you think it has anything to do the differences in the guidelines with the types of patients that are being seen? I, I, you mentioned it's very interesting that this Hong Kong group has been very prolific with doing studies. I presume maybe that has something to do with higher incidence of potentially H. pylori in the region. These patients have more severe peptic ulcers, and that's a more likely cause when you don't know what's causing a bleed versus, say, maybe in the UK, patient comes in maybe peptic ulcer is not as common and not as severe. I'm just grasping at the air here a little bit, but curious to hear your yeah, thoughts. No, I, I completely agree with uh, with your hypotheses. I think there is potentially a higher prevalence of H. pylori and therefore peptic ulcer disease in these regions where these studies were done. Um, and so I think that's absolutely a potential limitation. Can we really generalize what's been done out there to the population we're seeing here is another is, is, is certainly a question that we could, we could spend a lot of time uh, discussing. But I agree with you. It's important to note that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I got to say, sometimes we get these alerts when I try to order IV PPI in the hospital for shortages. So maybe in the next time a patient comes in and they don't and they don't look like they're having a severe bleed, then maybe I will think about holding off a little bit. During training, I certainly felt that giving a patient an IV PPI up front, it's so ingrained that it was a lot of shame the next morning on rounds if you didn't bring it up. So... And it's interesting then to go to the evidence and find out, wow, the clinical outcomes were actually not that much improved in the original studies with the IV PPI up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention is that I'm, I'm sure as, as a resident, you remember the gastroenterologist paging you after the endoscopy and saying the patient needs to remain on IV PPI for 72 hours. That's all influenced by these studies that we just mentioned, the original study where the IV PPI was given after the bleeding peptic ulcer was identified. So that's where the 72 hours comes from. And so that's only done for ulcers that have high-risk features active bleeding or visible vessel. If the ulcers actually have low-risk features, those patients don't need to be an IV PPI for 72 hours. They can actually be transitioned to a PO PPI uh, immediately after the endoscopy. So that's important to for us all to remember. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Good points. So right now, we talked about blood transfusions. We talked a little bit about the evidence behind 
why we do or don't give that. We talked a little bit about the evidence behind giving PPIs and that maybe we give it more so out of concern that the patient may be having a peptic ulcer bleed and that the evidence for giving it really is about making the peptic ulcer lesions look better at the time of endoscopy, downgrading the severity of the disease, and that that's the main benefit to giving a PPI. So, Bulem, anything else you might be considering giving the patient? What about this erythromycin that Naveen mentioned earlier? Sure. So, I know that we give patients erythromycin. Again, I th- I don't believe that it has a mortality benefit, but I think it makes endoscopy easier for gut uh, mobilization and um, kind of moving clots further along. So, that's also something that I would that I would give this patient. Although, I don't know in terms of timing when I should be giving it with respect to endoscopy. I love IV erythromycin. I wish we used it more. I think so many times I've come in either as a fellow or, or now as a newly uh, admitted attending to do a case overnight. We haven't given IV erythromycin, and sure enough, the stomach is still full of blood, and we can't see anything. We need to repeat the endoscopy the next day. And this has been borne out in the literature, so there have been studies looking at this. And sure enough, if you give IV erythromycin, the dose is 3 milligrams per kilogram, and it's an infusion, so it goes over 30 minutes. But in terms of timing, Balim, you should give it 30 to 90 minutes before the anticipated endoscopy. So that's our upper endoscopy prep. If you do that, just as you mentioned, it improves gastric visualization and therefore reduces the need for repeat endoscopy, which then ultimately reduces the the length of stay. So good reasons to give it. It's just like, you know, with a poorly prepped colonoscopy, it's really hard to see what we need to see. So I think we should think about prepping upper endoscopies with IV erythromycin much more than we are also actually doing. It's in guidelines to be giving a promotility agent prior to urgent upper endoscopy. So we should absolutely be doing it. So, Mike, I would call a GI consult before giving erythromycin. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That sounds... In my timeline. (laughs) Yes. That sounds great. Excellent. Uh, Yeah, so erythromycin, definitely not something that was commonly seen when I was a resident and a learning point for myself walking away from this discussion is to give it more frequently for patients with upper GI bleed, especially the ones that I think clinically have bled a lot and recently. Exactly. Especially if your your consultant's coming in overnight to do that procedure, you want to get a good yield, diagnostic yield, and potentially therapeutic yield. And I just add the one thing to look at uh, for if you're giving IV erythromycin, of course, for our cardiologists, uh, check the QTC just in case. You don't want to give this if, it, if it's prolonged in a patient. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. So on to the point of calling the consult, because at the end of the day, for a lot of patients, especially the really sick ones who have a bleeding ulcer, the definitive therapy is treating it endoscopically. What are some of the things, Bulim, that goes to you in your mind when you think about calling a GI consult, things that you might want to make sure to mention to the on-call physician? All right. So I'm going to give a quick synopsis as to how this patient presented and their initial labs upon arrival and the the measures that we've taken so far to stabilize and and manage the patient. If I have a repeat HNH for the patient after transfusion, I think it's always helpful to show whether there's a response to the transfusion or not. And then if I have a, a little bit more of the history for the patient in terms of their risk factors, and um, kind of a general, especially abdominal exam. I think those are, to me, the the information that I try to have available before calling a GI consult. Naveen, anything else you might be uh, wanting to hear when you're on the other end of the phone, deciding when to come in and see the patient, et cetera? Yeah, not much more to add, but I think uh, Balim hit on most of the major points. One is, I mean, first and foremost, I think it is important for any resident or medical student to see the patient first before they call the consult and assess the patient. So I appreciate that you mentioned the fact that you're going to actually see the patient, examine the patient before you call. I think it's really helpful, and this is true for any consult that you call, to have a question in mind that 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 really frames the consult for the consultant. And so I think the consultant can be much more helpful if there's a specific question that we're asked. 
And then, like you said, there's data. And so we want to know specific data. We want to know um, what is the evidence of the bleed? Is it hematemesis? That makes me nervous versus uh, melana, which can also be a severe, significant bleed. But if someone's having active hematemesis, that definitely raises my suspicion that I may need to come in overnight to this bleed. Vital signs, as you mentioned, hemodynamic instability despite resuscitation, that's an indication for urgent endoscopy. So that would make me want to come in earlier. Like you said, going through the medications, the risk factors, I think it's really helpful if the patient has had a GI bleed before, if you have that data accessible so that you can share that. What were their prior endoscopies? What did those show? That's really helpful in terms of giving me an idea where I'm going to be looking for the source of bleeding. And then I'll add in mental status is, is something that's actually a key component. We'll talk about a little bit with risk scores, but mental status is actually a uh, is influences prognosis and upper GI bleeding significantly, and it affects the way we manage manage these patients because if someone has an altered mental status, they generally need to be intubated before we can do any type of endoscopic uh, inter, uh, intervention. And lastly, I'll give, I'll give bonus points out if, if a rectal exam is performed. For all the residents out there, you can do that uh, to please your GI fellows. Excellent. So going back on this point that you uh, mentioned at the end, these risk scores. So there are all these names, Glasgow, Blatchford, Rockall. <laughs> Sometimes it can be a little hard to keep track of all of them. To be honest, I never seen any endoscopists ask me or put it in their notes. So how important are they and when can we use them? That's a great question. So turns out calculating the risk prognostic score is, all, is actually part of guideline-based care. But as you just mentioned, we do not do it nearly enough as we should be. So there's actually a national survey study of providers who um, who dealt with upper GI bleeding quite frequently, and only 30% had ever used a prognostic score. And we'll go into the reasons for this. So, But first, let me just classify the scores. So there's pre-endoscopic scores. So those are scores that you can calculate before endoscopy. And then there's post-endoscopic endoscopic scores, and those require endoscopic information to calculate. So of the pre-endoscopic scores, you mentioned Glasgow and you mentioned Blatchford. So that's actually one score. It's called the Glasgow-Blatchford score. And that's the most, um, often the most quoted upper GI bleeding score that is used um, both in the literature as well as practice. It was developed to predict the need for intervention. So interventions were defined by blood transfusion, endoscopic therapy, or surgery during the hospitalization. And it does that in a very, very uh, accurate manner. So it has high validity for predicting the need for those interventions. But the score ranges from zero to 23 points. It's based on five different categories of clinical criteria. So it's the BUN level, the hemoglobin level, systolic blood pressure, heart rate, and then clinical presentation. And then for in terms of clinical presentation, that is, do they have melana, syncope, liver disease, or CHF? So imagine trying to calculate this score in your head. It's impossible. You need a calculator, which honestly these days is not that hard with the smartphones. But I think that's part of the reason why the study found that less than a third of providers are actually using the scoring system because they're not easy to calculate. So let me introduce another score. It's called the AIM-65 score. So this was actually developed by my mentor, Dr. John Saltzman at the Brigham. And it's much easier to calculate because it's an acronym, and each category just counts for one point. So let's go through it. AIM-65. So the A is albumin less than 3. I is INR greater than 1.5. M is mental status change. S is systolic blood pressure less than or equal to 90. And then 65 is age greater than 65. So if you have one of those criteria, you get a point. If you have all of them, you get five points. Zero to one is considered low risk. Once you have two or more, you start having higher risk for mortality. And this is what the score was designed to do, was to predict inpatient mortality. So I'd offer up the AIM-65 score as an easy score that you can calculate at the bedside without the need for a calculator. And your GI consultant would surely be impressed if you mentioned what the AIM-65 score was when you placed that initial call. Let's touch base just briefly about post-endoscopic scores. So the most commonly used one is the Rockall score. And the information that it includes is the endoscopic diagnosis, the stigmata of recent bleeding, and then also clinical information. So it's very good for predicting mortality, but again, it's, an, it's a score that just is not helpful up front because you need the endoscopic information. So this helps prognosticate after the endoscopy. There is a pre-endoscopic Rockall score, but again, I typically use the AIM-65 score if I'm trying to prognosticate. And we should be. We should be. It's evidence-based care, guideline-based care, sorry, that we should be doing this for every patient.
All right. So I'm going to take that one to heart and start calculating more of these scores. And I think as electronic medical records and healthcare systems get better, these scores hopefully will get integrated more easily into the routine practice and providers can just see a pop-up when they have a patient that comes in with a GI bleed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think in addition to prognosis, it's actually been shown to be helpful for triage. So let me just talk briefly about one um, one study that looked at patients who had a glasgow Blatchford score of, score of zero. So that's the lowest risk upper GI bleed. So there was a large prospective study, over 500 patients who came in with upper GI bleeding into the emergency room. If they had a glasgow Blatchford score of zero, they were followed prospectively. So of this cohort of about 570 patients, 120 or so were low risk. So 80 of those patients, 84 of those patients were discharged home. They did not get hospitalized. They did not receive an endoscopy. They went home. Of those patients, they followed them for six months, and none of them had died or were readmitted with an upper GI bleed. And then 23 of those patients did go undergo an, an outpatient upper endoscopy, and on upper endoscopies, no malignancy, varices, or ulcers were identified. So no high-risk lesions. So the conclusion was that for patients who come into the emergency room with upper GI bleeding that's low risk based on this glasgow Blatchford score of zero, they can reasonably be discharged home if they have reliable follow-up and they're close to medical care. So we can use these scores not only to prognosticate, but also to influence triage. That's really a really helpful point. Has that recommendation made it into the guidelines yet? It's in the consider a category, so it's definitely it's there, but um, I th- it's not as strongly recommended as other um, evidence. All right, at least something to consider. <laughs> so, we call up our GI consultant for this patient, and given that the patient is relatively stable, though he's lost a good amount of blood, he's going to undergo endoscopy the following morning. We decided to give him erythromycin timed at the appropriate interval, and the following morning he undergoes his endoscopy, and he's found to have a bleeding vessel, which has some adherent clots to it. The endoscopist said he should definitely continue on IVPPI for another 72 hours. He's on the floor, stable. We'll be continuing monitoring him for the next few days. Naveen, are there anything else that you would recommend that we do for this patient while he's being watched for any possible rebleed? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, obviously we're doing things like, like you said, we're monitoring. He remains on telemetry. We're looking for tachycardia as the first sign of potentially active bleeding. We're monitoring the hemoglobin throughout. He's on IV PPI, as you mentioned, because he had a high-risk peptic ulcer disease, so he'll receive that for 72 hours. Other things, we have to think about why did he have the bleed in the first place. So he is on dual antiplatelet therapy. He is on an NSAID, so potentially this could be an NSAID-related ulcer. But we actually recommend that um, patients, even in the presence of a bleeding ulcer, undergo gastric biopsies to assess for H. pylori. Because certainly if you have H. pylori and you're on chronic NSAIDs, your risk of recurrent bleeding is much higher. So I hope he received a gastric biopsy to exclude H. pylori. But I should note that in the setting of bleeding, the diagnostic yield of histology is reduced. And so even if that biopsy comes back negative for H. pylori, he should have a follow-up non-invasive test for H. pylori, either a urease breath test or an H. pylori stool antigen, once it's safe to stop his PPI therapy for two weeks. So that's one thing I'm thinking about. The other is, when am I going to look back to make sure this ulcer is healed? So gastric ulcers should generally be followed up within 8 to 12 weeks to make sure the ulcer is healed because if they haven't healed, that is a sign that potentially this may be a malignant ulcer. So that's important to do. And that doesn't hold true for duodenal ulcers. Generally, duodenal ulcers are benign, so we do not do repeat endoscopies for duodenal ulcers unless the patient has persistent symptoms. And then I'll close with We'll do 72 hours of PPI, then what? So we're going to transition to POPPI for at least eight weeks to allow adequate healing of the ulcer. And then we have to think about what, what do we do with the PPI? I think too often we leave patients on PPIs who do not need to be on them. And we're getting more and more evidence that the PPIs are not as benign as we thought. So for this patient, he actually will likely need lifetime PPI because he has, he needs 
aspirin. He's secondary prophylaxis of coronary artery disease, right, Mike? He had a PCI five months ago. Yeah, that's right. So he's going to remain on aspirin. So if you if he needs to remain on aspirin and he has a history of a bleeding peptic ulcer, he should remain on PPI indefinitely. The other folks who should be maintained on a, on a PPI are those who have idiopathic peptic ulcer disease. So that's if they have not been on NSAIDs and they don't have H. pylori. Those folks should remain on PPI as well. So those are kind of the three things I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about H. pylori testing. I'm thinking about when do I have to repeat the endoscopy. And then finally, I'm thinking about what am I going to do with this patient's PPI long term. Excellent. And on the topic of aspirin, you know, this patient has a lot of good reasons to remain on antiplatelet therapy given his coronary artery disease. But we do see patients come in with a GI bleed who's on aspirin for primary prophylaxis. For these types of patients, the ones who take aspirin for a strong indication and those who take aspirin for primary prophylaxis, what is your thought process about the idea of stopping the aspirin when they come in? Oftentimes, they undergo endoscopy pretty shortly after admission anyways. That is it a helpful intervention? Could it even be possibly harmful? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. And I think what we where we often encounter this is for those patients who come in with coronary artery disease, they're on aspirin, they have their endoscopy for a bleeding peptic ulcer, we achieve hemostasis, when can we restart the aspirin? So this has been looked at, and actually a randomized control trial actually found that the patients who were restarting their aspirin immediately after endoscopy had a significant reduction in mortality compared to those patients who were told to wait and hold on their aspirin reintroduction for 30 days. The take-home point is that patients who have bleeding peptic ulcers who have good indication to be an aspirin, that is they have secondary, this is for secondary prevention of coronary artery disease, should have their aspirin restarted as soon as possible after hemostasis. It can be done even immediately after, or generally we typically say within three days. Fortunately for this patient, we did decide to hold the doses of his aspirin and his clopidogrel during his immediate presentation to the hospital, but because he had a good endoscopic outcome treating his lesion, the decision was to to restart his due antiplatelet therapy on discharge given how high risk he is for having adverse cardiovascular event. But I think this is a always a moving target, a discussion to be had between the cardiologist, the patient's primary care doctor, as well as the gastroenterologists, because oftentimes it's a weighing of the risks and benefits of either decision, stopping or continuing through. All right, Blim, why don't you recap what we talked about so far about upper GI bleed? All right, so uh, what we covered today was mainly non-variceal upper GI bleeds, and we talked about some of the history and physical exam as well as the lab values that can help us to determine whether a bleed is coming from an upper source or a lower source. And we covered some of the possible sources or locations of of such bleed. We also extensively covered the management of these patients. Uh, Namely, we talked about the Villanueva study that um, shows mortality benefit for applying a restrictive transfusion criteria to patients with a upper GI bleed, as well as the use of PPIs for stabilization of of clot formation and that there's no difference in using a drip versus an intermittent PPI. and the use of erythromycin to ease the view during an EGD. And lastly, we also talked about the importance of the calculators that are available to us, such as the Glasgow Blatchford or the AIM-65, that can help us predict how a patient will do uh, when they present with an upper GI bleed. And then lastly, we spoke about some of the GI interventions that are available for these patients um, upon their presentation. Great. That's an excellent summary. And Naveen, anything else you want to add for our readers to particularly pay attention to? Yeah. I mean, we didn't get a chance to talk about it in depth, but I I did mention timing of endoscopy. So I mentioned that with variceal bleeding, the timing of endoscopy should be within 12 hours because these are more severe, potentially severe bleeds. With non-variceal bleeding, which we've actually spent the majority of this podcast discussing, guidelines actually recommend within 24 hours. There's been a fair amount of research in what if we come in sooner and do our endoscopy more urgently for non-variceal bleeding. And actually what, ha- what the, uh, the results are that more urgent endoscopy in non-variceal bleeding, so let's say within 12 hours, the outcomes, the clinical outcomes don't improve. So yes, you find more high-risk lesions, which therefore you have to treat endoscopically, but rebleeding, 
inpatient mortality, need for surgery, those outcomes don't change. And in fact, there's a couple more recent retrospective studies, one from Denmark and one from that actually I was involved in, that both showed that going sooner may actually cause more harm to patients, especially if they have, high, uh, have severe bleeding. And the reason we hypothesize this may be true is that these patients may not be adequately resuscitated prior to their endoscopy. So I just kind of leave us with that one that final point is that, you know, oftentimes we think upper GI bleeding scope, but there's so much medical management that has to occur beforehand that we just nicely outlaid, outlined uh, today in this podcast. But I'd, I'd make another, I'd like to underline, highlight the role of resuscitation, both fluid volume resuscitation with fluid as well as blood, because I think those are the types of um, therapies that actually do save lives. And so, you know, critical monitoring of vital signs, adequate resuscitation, monitoring of hemoglobin hematocrit, and then IVPPI. We talked about how, in terms of the data, does not improve clinical outcomes um, with uh, being given before endoscopy, which certainly has a role after endoscopy. So I think there's a lot we can do as medicine doctors in upper GI bleeding even before the gastroenterologist comes in. So let's always remember that. Yeah, that's such an excellent point to keep in mind. And I and I do want to mention things that we didn't cover today that are very important, as you mentioned, uh, resuscitation for the really, really ill patients uh, since they do come in. And oftentimes, as internal medicine doctors, we're taking care of them in the intensive care unit. That's a bit out of the scope of what we're talking about today. In addition, we did not get a chance to cover other types of GI bleeds, such as variceal bleeds, which fortunately, we are lucky enough that Naveen is going to rejoin us for another episode where we go into a little more details on the patient with cirrhosis and the patient presenting with a variceal bleed, which has its own difficulties and challenges. I think that's been a long enough episode today. Thank you so much, Naveen, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you so much to Belim for helping me create this podcast and for doing the research for all the things that we covered today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please visit our guide on acute gastrointestinal bleeding in the rotation prep section on gastroenterology for more information at resin360.nejm.org. I want to thank our expert today, Dr. Naveen Kumar, and our guest contributor, Balim Simon. Our production team here at the NEJM includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Kathy Stern, Dr. Karen Sokol Gutierrez, Dr. Lisa Colley, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hemenmick. Because this is a new series, we want to hear your feedback. Please tell us what you think by emailing us at resident360 at nejm.org or leave us a review in your podcast app. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at NEJMRes360. Once again, I'm Mike Mee, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine.